Welcome back to the afternoon session, which will be a, a panel discussion led by Ellen Davis, the Amos Reagan Kearns Distinguished Professor of Bible and Practical Theology, as Dr. Davis told me just before I asked her how to introduce her, and she said, I've been here forever. Um, so we welcome her and the panel that she will introduce. Dr. Davis. Thank you. Thank you. I have been here forever, but I've been here very happily, and it's good to see you and to see many of you again. I am here with three distinguished colleagues from the university, so beginning on your, this takes all the brain power I've got, beginning (laughs) on your left, um, Peter Gerrand, Regional Managing Director of Duke Corporate Education, uh, who also teaches psychology and neuroscience here at the, universe, at the university. Next to him is Dr. Eugene Washington, Chancellor of the Duke University Health System, and who has practiced medicine for many years in the field of gynecology. And next to him, Dr. Valerie Ashby, Dean of Trinity College of Arts and Sciences and a polymer chemist. Thank you so much for joining us. Our, and at the end of this hour, our new d- dean, Elaine Heath, will be joining us for a response to the panel discussion. As you know, the convocation topic is Who Needs Theology? But our topic this hour is Who Needs Theology at Duke? What is the place of the divinity school within the intellectual ecology of the university? In short, does Big Duke need theology? When the university was founded, the answer must have been obviously yes. The School of Religion was the first to be created along with the graduate school in 1926, with medicine following four years later. Now, many here are puzzled by the existence of the Divinity School within the university. Therefore, we have invited you, three thought leaders at different locations within Duke, because we think you may be able to give us new angles of vision on this question, who needs theology? This seems to us a propitious time to think about this, and to think about it with you. It is a new moment in the life of the school with our new dean, but also a new moment in the life of the university with recent changes in leadership. Both Dr. Ashby and Dr. Washington are in their second year, I I believe, and also a presidential search underway. So what we're going to do is have a round of questions. We'll have actually four rounds of questions with brief responses from each of the panelists, and then we'll have some free interchange amongst them, and as I say, Dean Heath will join us at the end. I'm going to see if I'm still wired, and I am. (laughs) In your life experience, 
What does theology mean? What associations does it have for you? Who does theology? Pastors, professionals, ordinary people? Who cares about theology? Would you begin us, Peter Guerin? Yes, I've been generously volunteered to go first here to this light question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to draft. Thank you. yeah, so theology, I and mean, what is theology? I think you know, theology is about God's relationship to humanity, and I think it's about uh, faith, experience, and practice. And so in, in that context, you know, I think it matters, of course, to everyone. Uh, and it matters at places like Duke uh, because... You know, I think we have an obligation or responsibility in some sense uh, to, to connect the world, to link the world. And if, if we have a foundational belief that there is a God and that this God is good, has character, then, uh, then we have a responsibility to, to connect people um, to that through an understanding of faith, through an understanding of practice, and through an understanding of experience. Uh, now, I think the word theology itself is, is our word. So I think I did an informal poll, actually, of some colleagues. And, you know, when they hear the word theology, they take a step back. Um, there's a barrier to that word. But I think part of our responsibility is, is to dig below the surface for people, to help them understand uh, what's beneath the surface, uh, really. So I think that's what I would say. And who does theology? I think we all do theology. I mean, I think... You know, in my context, which is the business context, uh, we are salt and light. Uh, and, and so I think, in a way, our own practices are things that bring theology to life day to day. Thank you. Okay. Well, I'll start the same point that Pete did. And we did not rehearse this, but um, um, I, I frame my thoughts about theology around the same concept of uh, God in the world. There's beliefs about God in the world. To your question about uh, who thinks about it or who's affected about it, that's, that's everyone from the very religious and faithful individual to the agnostics all the way down to you know, the atheists. Because if you're saying there is no God, at least you've had to think about it. So I say to some degree that means all of us have thought about it. Be, be, be beyond the broader concept, it's a question when I think about it of how you act on those beliefs. In some cases, in the form of structured religion uh, and through different uh, faith-based uh, uh, practices, uh, particularly through the church. But in some cases, it's acting on those beliefs without being in a structured environment, just through the sense of spirituality uh, and your connectivity directly with, um, uh, with God. And for me, connected to that is the degree of your faith in your beliefs, particularly those beliefs that are related, uh, uh, that are related to God. I um, will confess that um, uh, I'm a PK, um, and I can use that term here in North Carolina, and people know. When I use it in California, I can tell you I've, I've had all kinds of, um, you know... <laughs> I, I can't tell you some of them that I've heard. Uh, but having been born and raised in, 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 in the church, 
have, have had the benefit of uh, practicing it and watching uh, uh, my father practice the power of it at an individual family level, but in particular at a, at a community level. And so for me, it starts with me and how I live my life individually, but it also is important uh, that it plays a role in my life as a leader because I draw on the same benefits or the same beliefs, but now I can act on them in a much broader arena in terms of how we prioritize our goals and how we establish our aspirations. And it starts for me and fortunately for our organization with the notion that we are here to do good in the world based on our belief in God, uh, that all men, women are created uh, equal and so uh, we're looking for a way to take advantage of the resources around us to improve the lives of individuals. And faith is one of those resources when you have a belief that God is with you and on your side and you're responsible in the end for that God. So I will uh, thank you guys for going first and second. <laughs> I so appreciate that. Uh, I will uh, echo... Jean's comment, and interesting that we're sitting in this order, uh, because I, too, am a PK. Um, and this was not intended. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so what I would say is that I will, because I won't repeat what you have said about the definition of theology, I would agree. I will talk a little bit more about how it comes to play out for me personally and also in the role that I have here. Um, so how it plays out for me personally is that I, I do have my own belief in God, very strong faith of my own. It plays out in multiple ways. Um, it started from the first day that I decided I was going to be an academic. Um, the way that I come to the classroom is different. Um, I, I look at my, across my student body and I, I think very hopefully about who they are. Um, I, sometimes I look at them and I think, wow, I can't even imagine what God is doing in your life such that our paths are crossing at this point. It's, it's really interesting. Um, I've watched it play out in career choices. The way that I make choices may not look similarly to somebody who's trying to be successful. Um, it plays out in leadership. Uh, one of my mentors, uh, who's also um, a provost at another university, said to me, uh, Val, if you don't appreciate the pastoral component of leadership, you are going to fail. And so when people come into my office, my first thought is, ooh, why are you here? In a, in a bigger way. Um, and so um, there are principles that we live by in our leadership. Um, and my leadership team then adopts those principles. Um, and it is this belief that there is something that is far greater than any of us sitting here. We are not the center of the universe. Um, we don't, we're not in control of pretty much anything. We do the best we can, and we, I'm always hopeful. Um, so it plays out in, in, a, in, a, in my life, therefore in my career. Um, and I don't think it's any small uh, coincidence that I chose a career that is teaching, which is very much... Um, service, leadership, you know, I, I kind of role almost pastoral in the way that it is built. So 
Um, that's the way theology plays out for me and in my career and, and how I'm leading at the university. I just want to highlight that we have just heard a leader of a top 10 university say, we are not in control of much of anything. <laughs> yeah. It's required. Thank you. Well, if you, if you understand academics, then you, as a former dean, you know that administrators are not in control of anything. Yeah. Yeah. A few years ago, I was working with a group of colleagues from theological colleges in South Sudan, and one college principal said, we shared study together over about three or four days, and one of the principals at the end of that time said, the most important thing that had come out of our shared study was his understanding that there is such a thing as bad theology. Dr. Washington, I think you said that sometimes people, no, I, perhaps it, it was you, Mr. Gallen, say people sometimes take a step back when you make any reference to anything theological. So I'd like to ask, what might the idea of bad theology mean in our context? Are there ways of thinking theologically that are scary to you? Um, And if so, does that help us to think about the task of critical theology? What does it mean to be a responsible theologian who thinks about our discipline critically? I'll go first here. Yeah, um, So much of um, theology is about interpretation. Um, And particularly if we are talking about it in the context of religion, in the scripture, um, you can read the same verse and interpret it in a multitude of ways, and you know this. And, and down through history, there are examples of interpretations that were suited to defend behaviors that today we would not try to even invoke, one of them being slavery. You go back and look at many of the arguments in favor of slavery you could find verses that were being cited by ministers as well as other uh, supporters of that system that was rooted in, in theology. Um, I think it was bad theology then, but I think history shows today that, in fact, it was bad theology. So that's one example. But yes, um, that is when it's interpreted by people who don't have the principal intention of mind of what God and the world is about in terms of, again, that's why I go back to everybody is created equal, uh, there's goodness in the world, and our role is to use our resources and advantages to improve the lives of people. Yeah, and maybe I'll just add, and this is just a quick little analogy. I have four young kids and ages 10 to 5 and a few months ago, I was thinking about, someone asked me about technology and using technology with my kids, and I said, you know, the thing that I realized is that whenever I want to put my kid in front of a screen, I need to ask myself the question, which is, is my motivation to their benefit, or is my motivation to my own comfort? And what I realized about myself and technology is that I was often putting my kid in front of a screen for me. And I think it's the same, I think what you say about interpretation of scripture is true in terms of my own, you know, limited understanding about bad theology. It's the use of uh, of scripture or of 
theology and the set of beliefs to your own ends. So I think what you're saying is, is true. I agree completely that you know, we were created for one another. We were created to glorify God together. We are a part of a community. The church is one. Unity matters. Um, and, and so I think when we, uh, when we justify our, ourselves or when we are focused on ourselves and not on, uh, on the church more broadly, then I think that that's an example of what I would call that. And I, I think that this, I would agree, and um, I'll, I'll take a step back even further of, uh, when I think about the liberal arts education, so I'm dean of Trinity College of Liberal, you know, it's a liberal arts uh, education, uh, it's a college of arts and sciences. Um, you know, I have students from all but one state, South Dakota, um, was not in this last class, um, from 70 countries, all beliefs that you can imagine, and they converge in this place. And the question is, now what? And um, we do that purpose on purpose uh, because we want our students to be uncomfortable in a very good way so that you can exercise that muscle of when you're sitting next to someone to you, is your intellectual equal? Because that's how they arrived here but they believe something that is just orthogonal to everything you've ever been taught, now what? If this is my colleague on a team, now what? Um, if this is my colleague in a classroom, now what? If it's my professor, now what? And so bad theology, to me, um, shuts down, puts a wall in between us. Because if, if my God is who I think my God is, then that's a fact, right? And then for me. And therefore, okay, with you know whatever you're doing over there, that's fine, <laughs> you know. And so the the threat is not there, but when the wall goes up and the communication is down, and for whatever good your theology is to you now, it is of no good. Um, and so we want our students to be in challenging conversations in with very diverse groups of people. Um, not to shake what they believe because what they believe is what they believe. Not to, we're not trying to change anybody's belief. But I believe that bad theology doesn't allow me to, to interact with you as a human being in this world. Um, and that can't be right. Uh, well, it could be. <laughs> but I don't, for me, that doesn't work. Um, I am... I, that's not what we want for our students. So we, we have this diversity thing built into how we educate our students, but we build it into the people. Um, and, and I won't say what good theology is. Good theology for me is that, wow, I can be in this space with all of you, I can hear you, and I can decide, nope, none of that works for me, and then we're still gonna be able to do what we do together. Um, so. so Turning around then the notion of bad theology that you all develop that is something that throws up a wall or that makes something easier or that meets our ends but not necessarily the ends that we can honestly ascribe to God and God's intentions for the world. So critical theology would be willingly practicing theology in such a way so that it's actually more difficult for us, that we, that we have to 
endure the strain of difficult communication. Is that right? Absolutely for me. That is certainly part of the case. Now I'd like to get a little more particular um, in each of your areas in the university and your intellectual areas. How does theology or how could theology play a role in the intellectual life as you engage in it at Duke? Dr. Washington, you sort of adumbrated that a little bit yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Well, this one's, this one's particularly easy for me um, because uh, we have at Duke, uh, through the School of Divinity, the uh, Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative. And so um, uh, shortly after arriving here, uh, um, I met with the dean, um, your predecessor, and he described the program for me, and it, it, it laid out in very concrete terms all of the connections that I had envisioned and even more. And so quite concretely, it relates to scholarship, which is very central to a university in terms of Research, but that critical fostering of ideas and concepts around the connection between uh, religion or theology, and in our case, the practice of medicine. It relates to uh, education in the form of training that next generation of not just those who are in theology, but training a whole range of providers at different levels who provide spiritual or uh, uh, emotional and mental support uh, for our patients, but also for our employees and for our students and for our faculty. Um, it also relates to how we educate our, our leaders. Uh, um, for example, as it relates to uh, resilience and, and, and fostering resilience within a community locally or nationally. Uh, and then it gets... It, it gets played out real time in terms of practice in our world. Uh, emotional and um, mental well-being is tied up for, for many, and recovery and healness and well, wellness with uh, religious beliefs and or a spirituality and a faith. And to the degree we don't take advantage of that or be sensitive to it, then we are not optimizing opportunities that we have uh, with, our, uh, um, um, with our patients. And in, in that field of practice, the scholarship also is helpful in helping us to discern what are the best ways that we can go about that practice. But what, what, what makes, I think, Duke somewhat unique relative to some scholarly institutions, you can focus on theology without connecting it necessarily with the practice of religion in terms of the church. And that is, through our program, we have now the uh, reimagining help collaborative. Some of you may participate in it, where uh, we work with churches, uh, all of whom have health ministries, and the collaborative is exchanging ideas about how you strengthen or innovate within your health ministry to improve the health and well-being of your congregation and others uh, uh, in the community. And so, in so many ways, and then we get to the education uh, which we're connected with. But all of what I've described so far is through this very organized initiative in the School of Divinity around theology, medicine, and, and culture. And there are degree programs and certificates 
and other kinds of uh, ongoing uh, training and educational opportunities available. It's very well connected in our world. Including, I will note, four shared faculty between yes. the School of Medicine. Yes, uh, uh, Farr and, uh, and Warren and also David. Who's in the, in, and uh, Dr. Payne. That's right. Mm-hmm. So five, because David yes. is in the, in the Global Health Institute. Yeah. I think I can say without betraying any confidences that it has been interesting to me uh, Dr. Ashby and I are both on the search committee for a new president. And I have been asked more than once, do you really have shared faculty between divinity <laughs> and medicine at Duke? Yes. So. And you can tell them to expect more. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, promise. Committed. I, so nothing, nothing is formal, I think. I mean, it's amazing. One of the, one of the blessings, I think, for the university, of course, is the practice field of the of the hospital and the health system, and, um, and it's a way to live our commitment to the community. I think in other parts of the university, it's fragmented. Um, and I think if I think about the business context, you know, on the one hand, speaking from my own personal experience, on the one hand, you know, I work with undergraduates and teach a class on organizational purpose. And this was motivated because in the context of business, Students would leave Duke and they would go into the world and they would think of businesses as entities that were intended to make money. And it's a false, uh, it's a false assumption that that's, that that's the truth. The reality is that every business exists to serve society. Uh, it's stakeholders very broadly. And so for the last 10 years or so, I've taught an undergrad class that asks the question every week of different organizations. Coca-Cola and Google, what, what purpose do they serve in society? What role do they play? Why does society allow them to exist? And it's fascinating over the period of a semester to watch amazingly bright, motivated students grapple with this, to have their heads turn from it's about the income statement and the balance sheet to it's about having an impact, and to challenging the questions of, you know, do these places matter and do they do good? And when they don't do good, then what's the remedy for that? So that's, um, and on the other hand, the other part of my life is going out and working with leaders in large corporations. Um, And it is true that some of those big companies we talk about in the undergrad class are are actively pursuing these questions about how to be and do well in the world. Thrivent Financial, some of you may know Thrivent Financial, used to be Thrivent Financial for Lutherans, if you listen to NPR, you know, they, um, they, they're really grappling with this questions of how can we help Christians live well and be more generous. You know, they have two and a half million members. <clears throat> they're a billion, multi-billion dollar entity, and they're really, really pursuing this. And, you know, that's not something that they were asking themselves 10 years ago. They were thinking about how big they could be. And they recognized that in order to be who they want to be, have the impact that they're intended to, that they need to change the question. So, you know, I think another part of our work is to say, what does it look like, you leaders? We were talking about being leaders. You leaders to act in a way that brings these. You mentioned a change from 10 years ago. Am I right that the word mission has become more widely used in secular society and amongst corporate entities than it was a generation ago? 
I would value your perspectives as observers. I, I would say it may be more, I think there's a desire for it. I don't think that organizations do it well. I don't. I mean, last, at the end of last semester, I asked the students, what's one thing that you've learned? And they said that most mission statements for these big companies are crap. Like, they don't mean anything. And, um, you know, and so I think there's a hunger for it. I think the bureaucracy and the history of big institutions makes it hard. But they use the word. But they use the which word. Which is interesting. But they use the word. A word which, as Dean Heath reminded us, means being sent. It implies there's somebody behind you sending you out. So I would uh, pick up on that last point um, and just, I'll talk about the undergraduates here in a moment, but just talk a little bit about the leadership piece and, men, and mission. Um, so when I first arrived here, um, we, I, I inherited a staff of 13 people, phenomenal staff. Um, but we needed to reset because we were a new team together. And I'll never forget, we spent several weeks on this question. And so we were doing strategic planning. And, um, you know, when you do strategic planning and you do it with scholars and doers, uh, they want to know what are we going to do. And I said, well, we, we can't even begin to ask the question of what are we going to do? Because my first question is why are we here? And that's a mission-driven version of, like, so we do it all of the time now. We have three questions, and we ask them in this order, and we don't proceed to the next one until we are clear about the one that precedes it. So it's, why are we here? Then, because of that, how do we behave? And now, what are we going to do? And that order solidifies the mission, and then it tells you the principles on which we are going to act no matter what, and then we'll decide, well, now what do we want to do out of that? Um, I don't just think that's us in Trinity. I think that's the Duke ethos. Um, it, this is, I don't know if that's because of being built around this beautiful divinity school um, or the history, but you know, President Broadhead for a decade has been talking about knowledge and service to society. At a top 10 research-driven institution. Um, He's also a PK, isn't he? <laughs> Is he? That would not surprise yeah. me. <laughs> I don't know that, but it would not surprise me. Uh, but that knowledge and service to society then links our scholarship. Always we're asking the question, surely we're not just doing scholarship for the sake of scholarship, which is beautiful because we love that as academics. But we're always asking, so what? Uh, the students, this group of students, definitely wants to know why, uh, for what purpose, what greater purpose, how are we going to be of service. And so it doesn't matter what the scholarship is, and you'll see that in programs across undergraduate uh, education, uh, Duke Engage, uh, where they are out doing hours and hours. I think we just celebrated a million hours of service for the Duke Engage program. And the key is that the students come back, I heard a student speak about this, they come back, they, they, they go out thinking they're going to change the world, and they come back knowing that the world has changed them. That's what knowledge and service to society will do. You'll find that they built a bridge. But there's some principles that you learn when you put your knowledge in service, no matter what the scholarship is. It could be science, it could be anything. Uh, when you put your knowledge in service, then you discover how small you are, 
Uh, you discover that you don't know everything. Uh, you discover that you need to keep an open mind. Uh, you discover how humble you have to low, you have to put yourself before you can actually be of help to somebody else. Uh, all of those principles, which are tied to, for me, theology and certainly faith or how you're going to live your life in the world, it doesn't matter about your scholarship. If I'm going to teach an organic chemistry class, there's a way um, that I proceed in that because that's a service. Um, and so I think it's the Duke nature that, of course, we have a divinity school. Um, of course, we have excellent scholarship from the humanities to the social sciences to the natural sciences. But because we put our knowledge in service, of course, we have a divinity school. I'll just add to one. Yeah. The other thing that they learn, which is, from my perspective, fantastic, uh, they learn how satisfying it is to give. Absolutely. They learn, and, and I'm sorry, again. They learn how satisfying it is to give. Yeah, they come back changed, but they also mm -hmm. come back with a sense of having contributed something significantly, even though it may have seemed small. Mm -hmm. And um, that is inspirational. That's the gift that just gives and gives and gives and inspires you to want to give more in some other venue. What's fascinating is that when the students come back, we did not realize that we needed to reacclimate them. Because now they're thinking, what am I doing and why does it matter Good. that I'm going to these classes? And we say, no, no, we need you to finish your degree. <laughs> <laughs> but they found something that's so right. much more that's meaningful. Right that it's hard for them to wrap their heads around why this thing that seems now like such a privilege isn't a waste. And so now we have to help them, you know, come back. But also, you know, the, the beauty is yes. that they've never, they're never going to lose that experience. And now that knowledge will be applied very differently as they go out. So, I know I've told you this, Dr. Ashby, but I sent a student to South Sudan teach Biblical Greek, and she was toying with a vocation to uh, become a linguist of Biblical languages, and, but she felt it would not be useful to anyone. After spending a summer in South Sudan teaching Biblical language, she discovered that it was useful, and she went on then and did her doctorate in Northwest Semitic languages. So, um, but this is the last question I would like to ask um, in a formal way, and then we'll open it up for conversation amongst ourselves and invite Dean Heath to join us. So now we're beginning to look beyond Duke to wider society and what difference knowledge can make, and specifically now good theological knowledge and understanding. We four will probably never be gathered for quite this kind of conversation again, so while we are, can we think together about conversations and collaborations that we might be generating here at Duke that would make a positive difference for how people think and therefore live beyond So I'll jump in. Um, this, uh, the conversation that struck me, 
have, because in Trinity, what we're really thinking about now is outside of the classroom, how do we create uncomfortable collisions and conversations for students um, such that they don't come to Duke and just find their comfortable path and never interact with people who are different than they are and have these challenging conversations. Um, and so we're thinking about now uh, doing something that's co-curricular in the dorms before they, so all of the first year students live on East Campus together. And they have not made any choices yet about who their group is going to be or where they are comfortable. They are just all first years and they just, you know, they, they just do what we tell them to do, basically. <laughs> Uh, and so what we're thinking about doing is having conversations in the dorms on their floors that are diverse by their very nature um, of really talking about why did you come to Duke? What is it that you want to get out of this Duke experience? And how can we purposely help you walk that out in your four years? And you're going to get a great education, but if, all of, if you don't get the interactions and the challenging conversations and question what you thought you knew to be true about people or ideas, you've really missed it. And so we're trying to uh, more formally, but in the dorms, have these conversations for first-year students so that when they go out, even when the, with the courses that they're choosing, choose something that you're a little afraid you might not be as successful, but you're interested in the topic. It, whatever you can do to stretch that muscle of new ideas, um, considering other people, um, realizing you don't know everything and being okay with that. Um, that's, what we're, that's what we're trying to do as far as the conversations. And we're trying to do it on the front end of their career so they will navigate Duke differently. You know, uh, one, of my, one of my father's favorite uh, um, expressions was, it comes from the scripture, but essentially to her whom much is given, much is expected in return. And in the context of Duke, uh, Duke is a uh, well-endowed institution. I'm not just talking about money. I'm, I'm talking about um, reputation, uh, its legacy and history of innovation, uh, the resources we have in terms of the intellectual capital across this, uh, this country, I mean, this, this campus. In we are, we are an institution with much. And for us to optimize that, uh, we are not going to be able to do that with, with, with Valerie doing even her very best in uh, the college without connecting with the other schools or with Pete doing his very best in terms of education without us having a more, more collaborative ventures across where we leverage all these assets to create a whole that's greater than the sum of a part in certain areas. And, and what I've really been impressed with and have certainly found quite gratifying is the degree to which this is part of the culture. There is this re receptivity. I just talked about the, uh, the theology and medicine culture, but across uh, the campus, we're about to roll out now a new campus-wide initiative called the Healthy Campus in which all the schools involved, the college, athletics. And when I look at the, like right now, at least the five major things that are kind of unfolding around food, nutrition, around emotional, mental well-being, around physical activity, environment, 
particularly around this, this fifth one, which is kind of fulfillment and purpose, the whole idea of theology and its interpretation and its teachings and its practices, to me, undergirds across that. But it relates, again, to how we're going to optimize these great assets that we have in the end to do more good for more people with what we have than what we would have done just working on our individual. So I think it gets played out every day and every time we hear about a new venture across the institution or with multiple schools and or the college, then um, we're acting out on that value that we place on, um, on, on God in the world and the, in our case, the, the, the teachings of Christ. Yeah, I think I'll just add um, briefly, you know, if I think about these two different lenses, one in terms of, you know, management or leadership training, which happens at the business school, but then preparation for life after, uh, you know, life after uh, the university, be it undergraduate or any of the graduate programs. I think one of the things in my experience here for the last 15 years that I've seen is that Duke isn't unique and Duke students aren't unique in this regard that this is a way point, but it's often seen as an end for people. So for undergraduate students to get into this amazing institution is a big check, and then what? And, they, and, and I don't know that we always do a good job of helping people imagine what life, fulfilled life, full life is beyond these kind of hallowed halls. And, and I think that's one of the things that we can do better. And I think you know, that, that means it does mean bringing a kind of theological component. It does mean integrating these five mm-hmm. elements that you talked. It does mean actually putting people in places where they're forced to think about the new context that they will be in. And I think that that's a deep, meaningful conversation that has to happen over a long period of time. And we have to help students. Uh, I stopped today and got some lunch on my way here, and I saw two of my undergrad students who were like piles of books you know, working hard, having lunch, and I was thinking about, this is fall break, they're on fall break, right? And I was thinking, you know, when do they have the space to take a step back? And maybe it's on Engage, maybe it's a part of Duke Engage, but I don't know that everybody gets that. And I think one of the things that we collectively across the university can do is figure out ways to ask the questions and then convene the conversations, whether they're one-time things for students, and I mean undergrads or graduates, or that it's something that happens over a longer period of time. But I do think one of the things I'm thankful for, the Divinity School and the diversity within our campus more broadly, that we're very uniquely positioned to be able to Absolutely. change the narrative and the discussion among students so that we're not just another top 10 university, but there we're a place that's doing great in the world through the people who touch us and then go on. Again, thinking of a question that has been posed to me um, in the course of conversations about a new president Someone from another great university said to me, but a, a university that does not have a divinity school, public university, someone said, does it change the ethical conversation on campus to have the divinity school there? But it was a very interesting that it would even occur to someone to ask that question. I thought it was, it was really, very interesting. And I think of my pastoral theology professor. How did you answer that question? I was wondering, too. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> now it's our turn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I said yes that I thought it did, and that one of the things that is, dis- but not just the divinity school as such. I think that what does create an opportunity for a different kind of conversation here is in large part that we have such, we have more than one very active community of faith on campus. So we have robust Muslim, Jewish communities alongside Christian communities and of different stripes within each of those three communities, plus additional smaller communities. And the the fact that you sort of can't ignore the presence of any of those large bodies and their their claims, Mm -hmm. I think changes the university. And sometimes, thinking back to the early conversation about critical theology, makes our lives more difficult in some ways. The, the crisis that we had a year and more ago now over the, um, over the call to prayer. At other, I have taught at at least one university where that simply would not have been a big problem. You know, it probably never would have come up, and it would not have attracted the same kind of attention. So it makes our lives more difficult. Um, and but, more rich. And more rich. And more rich. We think so, yeah. yeah. But I also think of my pastoral theology professor saying that in ministry you need to learn, and you all would understand this better than I, you need to be able to speak more than one language. And he didn't mean that literally, although we were in California, but he wasn't speaking in the first instance of Spanish and English both. Uh, but he meant exactly you need to be able to speak to people in business or in the health community or the science community about meaning, purpose, fulfillment, and find a way to do it that doesn't scare people off. Um, I would like to ask Dean Heath if she would come and join us um, and... And then if we have extra time, I know that we're formally going until 3 o'clock, but we may informally be able to go a bit past when those of us who have to end at 3 have left. Thank you. I really appreciated listening to your responses. And um, although I'm still quite new here, I've had a chance to already form relationships with each of you which have enriched my life and helped me with my work. So thank you, and I appreciate all of you. I'm thinking about how each one of you spoke of your personal faith and how it has shaped your approach to your own vocation. And uh, one of the important things that I heard there is that every person has a vocation. That's a holy calling, whether it's to chemistry or medicine or business or working as a theologian, uh, studying the Hebrew Bible, a sense of vocation, and because you had a sense of vocation or habit, it guides how you think about your colleagues, the students, how we behave in our professional um, commitments, and how we are in our personal lives. 
So it shapes the kind of person that you are in your workplace, and that in turn affects the kind of systems that we have in our workplace. So the, uh, the hidden leaven of theology infiltrates this place through uh, each of you and many others of our colleagues. So there was that aspect to what you said that I think is very important to us, especially for those of us who are ministry professionals, and we have congregations that tend to think of theology and ministry as something that the ministers do, Mm -hmm. Uh, and that vocation is something for professional ministers, but no, it's for everyone. We, We all have a calling. I was especially interested in, in your comments about what constitutes bad theology, because as someone who uh, works in the area of missional theology, and I've taught evangelism for a long time, it seems to me that most of our work in doing missional theology and um, evangelism is, is undoing bad theology, hmm. uh, what God is not really like, <laughs> and what God's not planning to do to you. This sort of smiting theology, right? <laughs> because we act like the God that we worship. That's how we behave. We behave like the God that we, that, we, that we imagine when we worship. I especially want to mention something that Dean Ashby said. He uh, mentioned that students from every state but South Dakota, which is kind of curious, what's up with South Dakota, uh, from 70 nations. And so this is really a cosmopolitan environment here which is fantastic. And something that I've been saying recently to a number of people when we think about, even within the Divinity School, having multiple streams of theology that shape our work, having different theological methods, this is a good thing. This is part of being in a university where you don't have just one way of thinking about everything. So I particularly appreciated the definition that you gave, Dean Ashby, where you said that for you... Bad theology creates a barrier where we can't get across to the other person. And that seems to me entirely consistent with the gospel that I read, that, uh, that God is, is intent on reaching all people everywhere and loves everyone. And so good theology is a theology that helps us to connect with our neighbors and form community across all kinds of lines uh, with people who are of different religions and no religion and even people from our same religion. I thought about the work of Henry Nouwen and his uh, teaching on the practices of hospitality. I remember one, I don't remember which book it was in, but he said something like this, that hospitality begins within my own heart when I create a space where I can welcome the other to walk barefoot without stepping on something that hurts. I thought it was a beautiful image, and this is what I was hearing from all of you, really, about good theology versus bad theology. Now I'm trying to read my notes on theology. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We do have here at Duke University some really wonderful programs that are interdisciplinary between theology and other disciplines. And uh, Dr. Washington mentioned our Theology, Medicine, and Culture program and Reimagining Health initiative. We also have... um, Persons, I'm thinking about Dr. Norman Wiersba, who's giving a lecture in, in this uh, convocation in pastor school, whose work, along with Dr. Ellen Davis, uh, integrates environmental ethics and ecological concerns with theology. And so um, 
What I find in our university is a wondrously hospitable place. I was so excited when I found out how uh, collaborative this school is. It was really one of the top things that made me want to come and work here. So I'm very grateful for that. When, um, uh, again, Dean Ashby, when you mentioned how you led your strategic plan, uh, I found that very helpful and inspiring. I myself am getting ready to lead a strategic plan. And the three questions you asked, why are we here? How do we behave in light of the fact of why we are here? And then what are we going to do? These questions are so important to all of us, and these are deeply spiritual questions. So thank you for raising those to us. Knowledge in service to society. This is definitely a part of our ethos here at the university, and it's something that we can strengthen as the days go by. Everyone here talked about how important collaboration is. And collaboration really is the best way to learn. And one of the things that I appreciate about Duke University is the collaborations not only within the school, uh, within the university, but also with other schools and with institutions and with nonprofits and all kinds of people and organizations um, out in the city of Durham and the Research Triangle and on around the world. And this increasingly in the future, I believe that uh, best educational practices are going to be all about collaboration. So we're, uh, we're doing well with that, and I expect that we will continue. Well, thank you very much for uh, coming today and sharing with us. I'm so grateful, and I'm sure that our um, pastors and other leaders who've come today are, are thankful also for your sharing with us. So let's give them a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dean Heath. Let me check, if I may, about timing. We'll end formally now, but would it be possible for those who could remain, I know, Dr. Washington, mm -hmm. you need to leave, but for those who can stay for a few minutes, could we have some questions from the audience? Good. Then perhaps, Dean Heath, you'll stay here. Okay. Um, in a uh, world where empirical uh, uh, research is so vital uh, to the activity of, uh, uh, of what you do, uh, there must be times when theology leads us there must be times when theology leads us uh, not only to offer the yes of the church but also even to offer the no of the church, times when our moral perspective might interfere with uh, research, with activity. Uh, have you encountered times when, when uh, uh, there have, the, the theology and practice have been at odds within your uh, different fields, different disciplines? And how, how do you respond to that? How do you try to uh, work through that? So I'll, I'll jump in. Uh, I, I'm asked this question often because I'm a scientist, uh, and I'm a chemist. Um, and so the way that I, so, so the answer is, in the field that I am in, I'm a, I'm a materials chemist. Um, and so I've never had the actual uh, challenge of what I'm doing in the lab or the kinds of pursuits that I have scholarly not lining up with principles of theology. It's just the nature of the type of science that I do. Um, 
I will tell you, though, that I use it the other way. And the other way that I use it, so for example, when I'm teaching, I teach organic chemistry when I was teaching. Um, and I love it. Um, and what is fascinating to me is, for example, when I describe to students how we can synthesize, and I'll actually do it in the, in the classroom. I'll, I'll describe a concept by doing an experimental you know, a procedure. And, and we make materials. So for example, I can make natural rubber, like from a rubber tree. The, the, the rubber tree rubber, I can actually mix the chemicals together and make that rubber like a you know, bouncy ball kind of thing. And then what I'll say to the students is, isn't it fascinating that in a rubber tree, the chemical formula never is incorrect, ever. It's 100% all the bonds go the same way. And when I make it here, I can make 99.45, but I can never make 100. Isn't that fascinating? Now, I can make them behave the same way because 90 looks a lot like 100, and they'll behave similarly. But isn't that fascinating? That they're just things that, I, I use it the other way, where I say, imagine this, that, that has to make you think that there's some things that you just can't replicate. Uh, and so I haven't had the challenge, ethical challenges. Um, I'd imagine if I was more of a biological scientist that I would have some ethical challenges. <laughs> um, you know, the beauty of being an academic is I get to decide what I want to work on. And uh, I think that's why we all love what we do, because we decide what's interesting to us. And, and how we want to pursue that. Um, so I've never had the exact issue come up as a scientist, but I am asked all the time, how could I possibly have faith knowing what I know as a scientist? And I say, how could I not? Because there's no way that I can do this. And I know what, I mean, we're really smart people in the world of science, and we can't replicate this thing. So it plays out the other way for me often, rather than as a negative. And, and I'm not a scientist. I'm a failed scientist. I studied chemistry <laughs> as an undergrad, actually. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, I think I work with big companies around the world, and, and so lots of leaders. And your business is a people business, and every business is a people business. And I think part of what, what we get a chance to do sometimes when we're guiding companies uh, in, say, their strategic planning process or they're looking at evolving their strategy you know, we have the discretion to say yes to working with them. And part of my own personal checklist for saying yes is, are they doing things to the, for the benefit of others, or are they doing things for the benefit of themselves, or for the benefit of short-term benefit of their institution? Um, that's at a, a macro scale. And so I think, you know, obviously there's lots of conflict with big companies and you know we can only do so much to influence them. But what I see more and more is when I work with leaders individually. Say I'm coaching a leader, you know it's easy to hold up a mirror to them, to give them a sense about what back to motivation. What's their motivation for making choices, especially related to the people that they work with? And it is almost always the case that by showing them that there's a better way, that has the interest of others um, at the center, that um, they actually get better long-term outcomes. So, you know, it's not empirical in the way that chemistry is empirical, but I do think that we have a lot of experience and evidence to suggest that operating in a way that's consistent with our the my theological understanding actually is better. 
So we talked a lot about good theology and bad theology, and part of what I think the question and the theme for us is who needs theology inside and outside the church is who are our conversation partners when it comes to theology. So I was wondering who have you found to be some of the most helpful conversations for generating a good theology both within the university context and outside of it? And then related to that, who do you see that's missing from the table that might add something to the conversation that's helpful? Maybe I'll go first. Thank you. So I've been here longer than, well, Ellen and I have been here for about the same amount of time. So I've been at Duke for 15 years, and, you know, I feel amazingly blessed to be in this context because I do think it's unique. And so there are uh, some people who are actually sitting in the audience who are great conversation partners and who have been helpful in shaping my theology over the years. Um, there are others, um, Greg Jones, who many of you know, who's now at Baylor, um, has been a good a good partner to me, but there are also others in in um, in the community more broadly in the Durham community, which I find to be dynamic and diverse uh, in terms of perspective and faith. One of the things that I was thinking about when you said having a divinity school um, makes it possible for other groups actually to have vital uh, life giving religious organizations. It's almost like we're not very imaginative on our own. We need to see other things so that we can imagine what's possible. And so I think Durham is a place where that imagination lives, and, it's, and, that's, and that's good. I think, um, I think the one thing I will say is that it takes time, uh, and it's not a straight shot. I mean, it hasn't been for me. You know, it's a real winding road in terms of the evolution of my own personal theology, and it's not something that I've done alone. I mean, it's, I emphasize this in my first response, but I think, you know, I'm so, I've been so formed. So uh, who's missing? You know, it's interesting for me to sit up here because I hadn't reflected on it that much beforehand, uh, although I should have. So, um, but I do think about what's happening on campus and where the business school is in the context of some of the conversations. Uh, and I think it's an interesting, you know, the business school sits at the other end of campus physically farther away than any other part on West Campus, actually. And so I'm thinking about the invitation. You know, Jesus Jesus led by invitation. You know, follow me. Um, and, uh, and so part of what I'm thinking about is what's the, what's the invitation, you know, maybe from the business school um, to the rest of campus to join in this discussion. I feel like the voice of business, as we talked about, mission matters. Businesses are the greatest agents for change in society today. There's no doubt about that, and so I think that their presence and perspective, businesses and you know education within business. That's a great answer. I appreciate that so much. Um, and I don't know that I would have very much to add. Although the latter point on business is very interesting in this context, because when I think about my undergraduates, uh, we we joked. Um, that our students come in and they're either pre-health or pre-wealth. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and maybe some of both. Uh, but the pre-wealth piece is because we have so many students who are interested in business, finance, econ, and they do really well. And when I go to Wall Street, and I have to do it a lot for development for 
soliciting donors and our alums, Duke alums run a lot of the business uh, at, at very high levels. And I'm now thinking about the opportunity of who might, what conversation might be missing. All of those people who are going to engage and be business leaders, where is the component of how you're going to do your business? Um, and maybe those conversations are ones that we need to think more about theology, business, economics, and how we're training our students. And that may be a group of people who are not at the table. Um, generally, in the liberal arts, um, the faculty are at the table, that is for sure. We're really engaged with the Duke community, as you have suggested, certainly pastors within the community. Uh, but that, that latter point is one that we might consider as it touches so many of our students. And I'm thinking about um, our alumnus, John Barber, who um, is the president of the North Carolina NAACP, how he, uh, in the demonstrations that broke out after the shooting in Charlotte, how he went and organized pastors to teach nonviolent communication right in the street, while just to reduce the violence and to get more people active in resisting racism and letting their voices be heard in constructive ways. So what I'm thinking about is the need for us to increase the number of public theologians that are coming out of our school. Some of those theologians will come from the divinity school, but I really think some will come from the business school and some will come from uh, our other schools. Uh, persons who are able to bridge the gap between theology and the world that needs to hear the voice of love and reason, a voice that's healing, that is life-giving, particularly in a world now that is so fragmented and polarized around issues of race and religion, sexuality, uh, and economic class. So I'm interested in seeing what we can do to strengthen public theologians coming out of the, not only our faculty, but, but students that go through our programs, how we can participate more. And I just want to add to that, I spent about 10 years doing work in South Sudan, building up theological education, but along with that, community health and community agriculture in a society that really had been taken down to the ground in 50 years of genocidal war, or 50 years of war, the last 20 years genocidal. And it, my most important partners in that work were people in business and, and medicine, uh, and it was really in that that it was born in upon me that the church is not the primary change agent in our society. It is business. Um, and, and often, if it depended upon theologians, you know, we couldn't organize our way out of a paper bag in many cases. Um, so it's, it, the, how <laughs> crucial those partnerships are really was born in upon me in that work. We have time for one more question, if there is one. As a pastor, I would be interested in knowing where in the church um, is most helpful for you in being formed theologically to help you in your profession, um, whether that's in worship or a Bible study or just helping with 
stuff for personal devotion? Where do you find the most help? Okay, I'll answer first. <laughs> so having just come from an amazing church service yesterday, I will tell you, I've personally, so first of all, let me tell you that these jobs that we do are hard. Um, and when I say hard, they're intense. Um, you know, 7,000 undergraduates, 8,000 graduate students. I have 650 faculty, 32 departments. And something can happen by one person in that crowd can do something and change my life at the drop of a hat. <laughs> and I never know when that's going to happen. And I wake, I leave my phone on vibrate because I have it right here. Because. Um, and so that's, it's an uncertainty about the things that we do that if you don't have your own personal certainty, it will drive you crazy. And so I don't worry about those things, but it's also physically exhausting, um, which also for me means spiritually exhausting because when I get tired, I get irritable, and then love just kind of gets pushed aside. <laughs> so, so, so I will tell you that uh, for me, uh, I have a routine. Um, I do a Sunday, and I my version of being able to do a Sabbath with this crazy job. So I worship, and then I rest, and then I work every Sunday almost without fail. And by Monday, I feel like I do today, like I could do it all over again, like I had never done it before with such energy and hope and light. Um, I need to look at my pastor. There's something about that. Even if I have a guest minister in my church, I enjoy the word, but there's something about this person who has been put over me, I, I trust that process. So when I sit in my pew, I expect something, and I yesterday I got it. It was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. So I, I count on that. I am also a student, and Ellen knows this about me. Um, if I open up my Bible, it could be hours. Because it just goes and goes and goes, and then you look up, and the time is gone. And I teach Sunday school to high schoolers. Uh, so that part is really, those two things are probably the most important to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a system. I mean, I think, I think worship, Sunday worship is, we go to, I go to this church here, Black Knoll, Syrian church locally, and, you know, every, every Sunday, every Sunday I learn that I'm there. And every Sunday I sing. And I reflect, and this is with my kids, super important, that they sing. Like, I stand next to them and I nudge them because <laughs> some of it's about worship and some of it's about because I think we were made to sing and we don't sing in our society. So, so I have an emotional, uh, a, an emotional experience, you know, and it's not just about emotion, but I have an emotion and an intellectual experience every Sunday in church. And that matters because it is rejuvenating. I think in terms of, I mentioned this before, in terms of my own development, you know, the thing that I find to be critical is uh, that I'm known. That people know me, they know what matters, that they know what I'm after, that they balance this standard back to theology, but back to the what are you doing in the world and why does it matter? And, um, and so that's a system for me. Um, it's I, I, being a part, this is my greatest learning over the course of the last 15 years in terms of growth of my own 
faith that it's not about me. It's about being a part of something, um, that I was made to be a part of something. And, uh, and that's something really big, and that it really matters. So, uh, you know, I think as pastors, my encouragement to you is, uh, is to think about the, you do. Think about the people who sit in the pews and think about the fact that every day they go out and they have hard jobs. They may not be that big, but they've got hard jobs and they're doing the best that they can, and any ability you have to translate for them that God made them to do their work and to do it amazingly well. There's this great quote by Dorothy Sayers. You know this. She wrote a great uh, piece on uh, why work and said essentially that, you know, a carpenter pleases God when they make the best chair. That they can. And your ability to be able to connect the dots for people to see that what they experience on Sunday is made true in their everyday through the work that they do is um, really really powerful. Pete Garand tells us that every Sunday I learn and every Sunday I think. Valerie Ashby tells us that worship and rest on Sunday enables her to get up on Monday and do it all as though she were beginning again. This is I think what most of us in this room give our lives for in different ways, and you've encouraged us and guided us and given us a vision for um, the kind of work we may be able to do um, in the future and the kinds of partnerships we may be able to forge. So thank you immensely for this time. Thank you.